Hello and welcome to the Next Gen Materials podcast. Today we are joined by Ashley Beckwith. Ashley obtained her bachelor's degree in biomedical and mechanical engineering at Colorado State University, followed by a mechanical engineering master's degree at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She is now a PhD candidate at MIT, as well as a Draper Scholar. In March of 2021, she published an article in the Journal of Cleaner Production on her research at MIT, which involves growing plant cells in three-dimensional scaffolds to produce alternatives to traditional wood sourcing. Her research, though preliminary as of now, has promising applications in the field of lab-grown furniture, which is an exciting topic in the field of next-gen materials. Thank you so much for joining me, Ashley. How are you doing? I'm great. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great to be a part of the project. Thanks for being willing to talk about your research. I know you did emphasize that it is preliminary, but lab-grown furniture is such an interesting topic. I, I really hadn't thought about it very much until I saw this news article about your work, so I had to reach out. And if you don't mind, I'd first like to just get to know you a little bit better. I know you have a background in biomedical engineering and mechanical engineering, but your project actually relates to plant cells. So I was wondering uh, sort of what led up to your interest in these plant systems? Yeah, of course. Uh, so I've been, I've been sort of all over the map in my academic trajectory and I've always sort of had this affiliation and appreciation of of plants. And so through this winding path to get where I am, I've picked up a lot of skills in in various research areas. For example, I have a lot of experience in cell culture in mammalian systems and materials and uh, new manufacturing methods like additive manufacturing. And so really, even though I'm working with a new species here, it's the work is a, a culmination of all of these learnings that I've accrued over the years. And so in this project, we take concepts from a bunch of different fields, uh, like the tissue engineering fields and additive manufacturing and new age manufacturing fields to really think about how we can transform the plant materials industry. Uh, and, and I know you, everyone likes the idea of, of lab-grown furniture, but I, you know, and I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking it even in a broader context, you know, how can we alleviate some of this demand on our plant-based material resources uh, as they kind of struggle to maintain their own populations? So we're focused on developing these new methods to obtain these materials for any number of applications. Have you had an interest in botany previously from undergrad or growing up? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think as a child, I always wanted to be like a farmer or an an adventuring botanist that, you know, wanders through the the rainforests and finds new medicinal plants and herbs and things like that. Um, Obviously, that's not a very practical career path these days. I'm sure some people can make it happen, but it wasn't very clear to myself. Uh, how to make that happen in my own life. So, you know, as you do, you kind of pursue other interests, uh, but I've always had a love of plants and I continue to have a love of plants. So, you know, I have a very lush green apartment (laughs) and, uh, and now I'm just excited to bring that passion into my work life as well. So it's been a great outlet for me. Yeah. I, I know you're from Colorado originally, right? 
I am. Yeah. And so we grew up, I grew up in the, in the forest and my sisters and I would just, you know, spend a lot of time running around the woods and building forts and, you know, exploring the, the nature around our, our house. And so I have a lot of appreciation for these natural spaces. They played a significant role in my childhood and I want to preserve those natural spaces for the generations to come. Yeah. Um, having been to Colorado a few times myself, I can totally see how anyone who lives there must have a huge appreciation for nature and preserving it and whatnot. So, well, thank you for introducing us to yourself. Now I'd like to start asking you some questions about your project, specifically your project in your PhD. Can you describe your PhD project in a nutshell? Yeah. So I guess what we're trying to do is grow wood without having to grow the whole tree and, or more broadly grow plant materials without having to rely on growing the whole plant system. And then this way we can localize the production of these plant materials uh, in a land-free manner and produce them without having to rely on agricultural resources or further strain agricultural resources. When you say it like that, growing furniture or wood without the tree, it kind of reminds me of like the cultured meat field as well, where you're growing meat without the animal because growing the whole animal is kind of inefficient. I mean, in some systems, you don't even need the whole animal. Right. Yeah. And it's very similar in this situation where, for example, in the case of trees, we focus on trees because they're of particular value. Deforestation is a huge problem right now. And trees are you know, a slow growing resource with typically low yields of these high value materials that we're after. And so, you know, when we think about the amount of waste that comes with producing the wood based products that we use every day, for example, furniture or wood finds its way into a number of other things. There are wood-based textiles. There are wood-based products that go into your food, into your uh, little pills that you, you know, your supplements that you take in the morning. And so wood finds its way into strange places, but you can imagine, you know, there's a lot of processing required to get from the tree form to you know, a food product or to a textile. So we want to think about how can we provide a better alternative resource that not only provides us the same products that trees can, but does it in such a way that it's easier to form these downstream products so we can reduce the processing steps to get to the final products that we need and reduce the energy required to get to the final products. But I, I've gone off the rails a little bit. <laughs> a bit. Uh, this is you know, similar in the, to the lab-grown meat analogy in that you know, we're trying to produce one tissue within the plant system without having to produce the rest of the plant so that we can eliminate this waste and hopefully speed up the time to produce these materials to help satisfy the growing demands we see. Who were your advisors on this particular project? So I have two advisors. One is at MIT. His name is Luis Velasquez Garcia. He's with the, where he runs the Velasquez Garcia group uh, in the Microsystems Technology Laboratory. And my other advisor is at Draper and his name is Jeff Borenstein. He's an expert in biomedical systems uh, and runs that group over there. Got it. And was this project your idea? 
you know, between my master's and my PhD, in my master's program, I was doing work with additive manufacturing and developing small medical devices to evaluate patient-specific response to cancer therapies. And so a very different, very different field of research. Uh, and I took a break between my master's and PhD to kind of think about what I wanted to do with my life and where I wanted my next few years to be spent. And so I took this time to reflect and kind of got back to thinking about what moved me as a child and what I liked as a child and felt passionate about. And that was plants and forests and trees. And so I was like, you know, these trees, these trees could use a hand right now. <laughs> so is there anything that I can do given my skills? Can I help to preserve these resources that are so meaningful to me and so many other people around the world? Can we bring some out of the box thinking to how we are addressing these deforestation challenges that we see today? That's so cool. I mean, I'm a PhD candidate myself. And I know firsthand how hard it is, especially when you're just starting off in your PhD to come up with a project yourself. I mean, I, I will say that my, my project was the brainchild of my PI. Um, it's kind of dictated by their funding, but I guess because you are a Draper scholar, you have more flexibility in your project probably. Yeah. I mean, I'm really fortunate. So I, I'm not funded by a, a specific grant um, in which you know, the terms of the project are already sort of laid out. So I had this sort of free creative space to operate within and luckily had supportive advisors who are willing to let me sort of venture off into this unexplored territory. Uh, and so, yeah, really grateful for the opportunity that I have had. Um, that said, you know, a lot of work went into even forming this proposal, which I presented to my advisors. And so these ideas, they like, they don't come out of, out of nowhere. Right. So yeah. we spend a lot of time, spend months building up these ideas and building up the case for why they should work. Uh, and so when you go to present them to someone, you, you, you provide a believable path forward. And I think, you know, that, that has helped me sell this project in its early stages. <laughs> Yeah, that's some great advice, especially for any other grad students out there who want to do a project that they are very passionate about and kind of take their own angle on it. It sounds like you you did some convincing in terms of, you know, showing yeah. them that this is a feasible idea. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think we had an established relationship and so they sort of knew my way of working and you know, we were able to, to trust each other in that sense to deliver something really cool. Right. Now might be a good time to transition into your recent publication in March, 2021 in the journal of cleaner production. You published the title is tunable plant-based materials via in vitro cell culture using a Zinnia elegans model. Can we dissect that paper a little bit for those who haven't read it or are interested <laughs> in reading it? I guess I, I was, I wanted to first start off. Um, why did you choose Zinnia elegans as your model system? Just to kind of start off with big picture you know, what we're trying to do is emulate the growth of plant materials or plant tissues as best we can 
in an environment that is outside of the plant. And so the first thing we wanted to do is sort of provide a reality check and just say, is this, is what we're trying to do even remotely possible? Is it, is it promising looking? And so in order to do that, we picked a model species to work with. This model species called Zinnia elegans. You might know Zinnia as, you know, the flowering species. We have them growing now. Every time I walk around the streets of Cambridge, I'm like, oh, there's a Zinnia, there's a Zinnia. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> um, so it's a common flowering plant that people have in their gardens. And it also happens to be a plant that's fairly well studied. And so a lot, a lot is known about its general biology. And that comes in handy for us when we want to just kind of provide a proof of concept of this idea that we've presented and see, can this work for plant systems at all? Uh, so Zinnia elegans was our starting point, uh, and we hope to, you know, leverage these methods that we develop for other species down the line. Right. Yeah, I guess it helps that there was so much known about it already. So can you talk us through like kind of the main method that you're using to grow these plant cells from Zinnia elegans in a certain shape, like, you know, that could be potentially molded into a furniture shape one day? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so what we do is first we need to isolate cells from the Zinnia plant. So we can essentially, in this plant, it's very easy to isolate zinnia cells. We can do this by essentially mashing up a few leaves and filtering the solution. And the cells kind of come out into the liquid that we apply to them. And so then we have this sort of liquid laced with cells. uh, And when we give them nutrients that they need, they can continue to sort of like grow and be healthy in this laboratory setting, even though the the plants or the cells are not within the the leaves where they started. And so we isolate these cells, which we then transfer to a structured growth environment. And by that, I mean, we basically put these cells into uh, almost like a jello that's full of the nutrients they need to continue to live and, and grow. And we can shape this gel with cells inside of it using various techniques. We can uh, use molds as you would if you were making a jello. Do people make jello anymore? I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't because it has gelatin in it and I don't eat that. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I don't know if this is a useful analogy to today's generations, but we can put these cells with the gel into a form and that gel will solidify into the form in which we place them. So it's essentially a casting technique. So we can produce specific forms that way, or alternatively, sort of the next advanced method of shaping these growth environments is to 3D print them. So essentially we place the cells and gel combined into a syringe and extrude the mixture out in a particular pattern. And so layer by layer, we can create programmed shapes in order to achieve this particular design that we're after. I mean, it sounds like a dictionary definition tissue engineering project. I was wondering what length scale are you working with at this point in your early stage research? I mean, like basically how large are these scaffolds that you are growing the plant cells on? 
Yeah, right now we grow materials that fit within a petri dish. So it's like a, t- a 10 centimeter diameter petri dish. Just for reasons of practicality, <laughs> we keep the samples fairly small, but we have promising indications that we could make structures that are much larger than this. Uh, but we haven't really scaled up the system at this point where we're focused more on the, the micro scale in this initial publication where we're looking at you know, how do we make the cells do we do what we want? And can we make some sort of material out of this new method of cultivation? Yeah, very cool. And I know something like wood, it's very dense, and it's hard. It's a hard material. And I'm just wondering, how would the cells in culture end up hardening or sticking together so that it becomes this dense, hard material? Once we get these cells into their gelled growth environment. We allow them to to live there for a while and they grow and they replicate, but also we provide them with signals to change cell types. So we provide them with these signals that encourage them to become vascular types of cells. These are the same types of cells we would expect to see within wood of a tree. Um, because zinnia as well has these vascular structures that are responsible for transporting water from the roots throughout the rest of the, the system, right? So we can encourage these cells to form these vascular cell types even outside of the plant. And when they transform, the cells put down almost like an exoskeleton. It's a, like a thick wall on the outside of their entities. <laughs> and uh, this wall is composed of cellulose, which you may have heard of, and, mm-hmm. and also a couple of other molecules that really strengthen the structure. And so that's how we sort of are trying to emulate the uh, wood-like structures that we're after ultimately. And so as far as sticking together goes, we now can transform these cells so that they become more solid. And then binding is obviously an important factor to add strength to the material. And so we achieve sun binding because as the cells are dividing, the the daughter cells will stay connected. And so in that way, it's a bit different from a lot of animal cell culture systems where you have your cells split and they become sort of individual entities. Oftentimes in plants, the cells will kind of split, but remain attached. (laughs) And so this interconnectedness kind of emerges naturally, but there's still a lot of research to be done on on the front of understanding how neighboring cells that didn't start from the same mother cell interact with one another. That's really cool that there's some inherent property about how plant cells divide that actually makes them better candidates for forming these materials that stick together. I, you know, I didn't know that plant cells when they divide and the daughter cell stays stuck to the mother cell. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, within within the tree, for example, you have on the outside ring of the, the trunk, this thin layer of, of cells that are actively dividing and, and creating more cells. But, you know, as they form cells towards the inside of the trunk, this growth layer sort of pushes outside, you know, grows with the trunk of the tree. So it remains on the external Um, external surface of this vascular tissue that we call wood. Uh, And so these cells 
that they're creating, the vascular cells that they're creating all end up in a central region <laughs> and they remain connected to one another. And that's how we get this nice cohesive structure that's so useful to us. You said that you differentiate these plant cells into vascular cells. I just wanted to be clear. When I'm looking at a tree and I see the bark and the tree trunk, are those differentiated vascular cells? So the vascular cells are on the interior of the trunk, right? So the wood. So yeah, within, within a tree, the wood is basically made up of this tissue called xylem. And these are almost entirely vascular cell types, which are responsible for transporting nutrients and fluids throughout the tree. So yeah, trees have more of these vascular cell types than a lot of other plants do because you know they're just such massive entities that you have to be able to support structurally and in terms of delivering the nutrients and fluids that they need. Right. You have this just very large bundle of tissue within the interior. Very interesting. I know typically when we're talking about stem cells in the tissue engineering context, we're usually talking about mammalian stem cells. And I was curious if you could comment on the differences between differentiation of plant cells, which it sounds like it's it's fairly straightforward. It's, it sounds easier than differentiation of stem cells in mammalian systems. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a caveat, right? Like, I mean, there are a few mammalian systems that we have been working in that we know very well, as I'm saying we, as if it's, it's me that's doing the work, but, you know, in, as a field in general, there are a few mammalian systems that have really been core focal points over the years. And we've developed a lot of knowledge on these particular species. Whereas in the plant space, there are so many species that are just, Mm -hmm relatively unexplored and partially, you know, maybe it's because there wasn't the same health angle to sort of motivate research in the space, but there's a lot yet we need to learn about these different species and, you know, different species are going to react differently to different growth conditions and to different stimuli. And so there are some species like the zinnia, which is one reason we chose the zinnia, (laughs) where it's relatively well-established that these cells can be made to transition pretty easily into the vascular cell Mm -hmm. types. So that research foundation sort of exists. And that's kind of why we wanted to focus on this particular plant first. But there are a lot of other species for which this information isn't really well known. And a lot of the, you know, underlying biology, the systems kind of work in similar ways, but they rely on slightly different signals to cause the cells to transform in particular ways. And so there's a lot of space to explore still, and we'll have to continue to do that as we migrate our systems to other species. I I can't help but keep relating this to the cultured meat production, that it also has a lot of ongoing research happening. I keep thinking about an animal muscle. The muscle cells usually have blood vessels to help transport nutrients and oxygen to further distances within the muscle, unless they're also growing some sort of blood vessel system within the cultured meat. But when I think of something like furniture, I figure the same problem of the nutrient transportation probably exists so that you can be able to grow dense masses. I know you're using vascular plant tissue, but are these vascular plant tissues able to transport nutrients easily? 
Yeah, it's a great question. There are a couple of differences. The, the short answer to your question is no. I don't think that these vascular elements are playing any functional role within the tissue. But the nutrients are sort of distributed throughout the environment in which the cells are growing. So these gel structures that contain the cells are filled with the nutrients the plant cells need to continue mm. to grow. So, you know, in the in the short term, we're not really worried about transport of these nutrients to central regions because it just sort of is profuse throughout. However, you know, as you think about scaling up, sure, you think about how how long must these cultures be maintained and how thick can these structures be before we need to start you know, infusing new nutrients somehow into the depth mm -hmm. of these systems. And I think right now there's an important difference between sort of tissue engineering in the animal space and tissue engineering in the plant space that we need to make. Uh, and one is that in the animal space, your motivations in the end or the tissue that you need out of your effort is a bit different in that you, you often want you know, a, a tissue that can support sustained viability and that can integrate into some other living system. And so that functionality is super important and the cells have to be structured in such a way that they can continue to operate within the native system. On the other hand, in the plant cell culture space, when we use these tissues in their final applications in building furniture in, you know, whatever other downstream product we're looking to produce, these tissues are dead. So even within the tree, the xylem tissue is predominantly a, a dead tissue. It's just a skeleton of the cells that were once there. Right. And those vessels are functionally useful, but no longer living. And so it's in this dead state that the plant material is useful to us. So what we really need to do is just get these materials to a point that they can live until they reach the desired sort of density or you know whatever other properties we're interested in. But we don't have to continue to keep the tissue alive beyond that point. That makes perfect sense. And I wasn't even thinking about the fact that in trees, the outer part is usually dead cells. Yeah. I mean, if you're thinking of bark. Um, oh, I'm, I'm also just thinking about the outside, like the outer ring. Isn't that also usually dead? Well, I think usually the outermost ring and maybe don't quote me on this because I'm not actually a plant biologist. I'm, you know, a plant engineer, if you will. <laughs> I think the, the outer ring of the trunk is the living tissue, whereas all the internal wood is typically dead. So it typically dies from sort of the center out. Oh, gosh, I... I don't know anything about plants. <laughs> I know. I, I've had this realization over the last three years as I've just been spending so much time reading about plants. So many questions have come up and I'm like, I had no idea how, <laughs> how plants grew. It's insane. I'm sure other people will also be confused by some of these details and really appreciate you breaking it down for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem. We, we should get a real plant biologist on here to really take our knowledge to the next level. But yeah, yeah. I can provide you with some, some general guidance. <laughs> so I, I had another question, again, relating it to cultured meat production. I know another problem when growing cells in these dense three-dimensional matrices is that there's a phenomena called contact inhibition and contact inhibition is when the cells grow until they take up the entire substrate they're growing on. But then once they start to contact each other, there are signals that 
tell the cells to stop growing. Um, and unless it's like a cancer cell, in which case they'll keep on growing until they form this dense tumor. So is this contact inhibition problem or it's not really a problem. It's a mechanism. Is that also evident in plant cells where they don't like to be contacting each other? And so do you anticipate that this will be a problem when we want to grow dense objects like furniture? Yeah, it's a fair question. And you know, to be honest, I haven't spent a lot of time researching this particular aspect. In the species that we want to transfer this technology to, we're looking at working with what are essentially almost cancerous cell systems or systems where these cells are generated by a wound response mechanism. And so their response in nature is just to grow, grow, grow as much as they possibly can. And so we see them, you know, butt up against one another. We see them grow and intermingle with one another, and they just kind of continue to carry on growing. So I, I mean, we haven't seen this, but right now, you know, we're talking about our materials being at the densities of, say, like balsa wood. <laughs> so. Okay. We certainly haven't achieved the density of some, you know, like hardwoods. And I couldn't tell you right now what happens when we start looking at producing things at that density. But one interesting feature of these systems is that we grow the cells till they sort of fill out this scaffold space. And then just like we do with wood in traditional wood processing, we dehydrate these plant samples before we use them. And so in that dehydration process, there is some shrinkage of the whole system, some densification, if you will, where the, the whole system becomes kind of compacted. And that can help us to achieve those additional levels of, of density in the end. So maybe that's a useful mechanism down the road. But again, these are these are areas that still need to be explored. Right. I mean, this is brand new research. So on that note, what are some of the next steps in this preliminary research? I think it sounds like you need to figure out what's going to happen when you try to increase the density. But what else do you feel needs to be looked into? Maybe not by you, but someone else. One, we're really interested in seeing this work translated to higher value species so that we can really gauge what kind of impact we can make with these technologies, and then scaling these systems to see how big can these structures be grown uh, is another interesting and open area of research. Mm -hmm. And then, as you alluded to previously, looking at these sort of cell-to-cell interactions and how can we how can we control those in order to produce better materials. Or how can we align the cells if we want to create the grain structure like we see in plants? There are a lot of things that we don't know about these systems. And this paper that we published is really only the tip of the iceberg. And we're in the process of characterizing these materials and sort of benchmarking our progress to this point so that we can continue and other people can continue to build on what we've started. Personally, I'm interested in looking into you know, other applications as well. I mentioned you know, wood products going into a whole <laughs> slew of commercial products and biofuels and oh, right. you know, infrastructure and fuels and uh, you know, all of these things for which the structure of wood isn't the key element or isn't the most important factor. So I'm interested in looking at you know, can we produce other wood-based materials to satisfy other market needs so that we can alleviate this burden on trees and reduce downstream processing. 
you might not even be limiting yourself to wood materials. I mean, there some of these methods could also potentially be applied to growing other sorts of materials besides wood. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm thinking of countertops or, um, you know, another thing I, I was thinking of recently was elephant tusks, since those are so precious. They're such precious materials due to their their properties. And I'm kind of wondering, like, can we use cellular agriculture to grow alternative animal tusks, for example, so that the ex- extinction yeah. and poaching problems aren't as great? Yeah. I mean, these are all great questions. And, and I think Right now, we're at a point in time in scientific innovation and development where, like, we should be asking these really random questions. Yeah, right. Um, and, and these are all important problems that need answers. And sometimes the answers aren't going to be the most obvious ones. So we just need to kind of entertain these strange questions and see what's actually possible before we relinquish ourselves to to doing things the same way they've always been done. So, mm-hmm. you know, we just want to think differently and think about things in a different context. I mean, it sounds like basically we just need to get more creative and there needs to be more research into some of these alternative, either microbes or plant systems and move away from traditional wood sourcing that leads to so much deforestation for these materials in general. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would just say like, there's a way to do forestry sustainably and, you know, in every system, we're going to be impacting the world in some way, right? There's no, there's no solution where we have zero impact. Every action that we take has impact. And so we just have to think about how do we distribute these impacts so that we don't overburden one system over another. So, you know, right now our forests are shrinking by incredible amounts. There have been some recent studies by um, some researchers at NASA, you know, showing that we're losing you know, billions of trees a year. And it's incredible to think that in a few hundred years, we could possibly have no forests left at this rate of uh, at this rate of loss. So there are sustainable activities within forestry but how do we address this over-the-top demand? How do we address mm-hmm. this additional burden that is causing and driving these losses? Um, and part of that might come down to cellular agriculture for high-value products, or people are looking into cellular agriculture for a whole bunch of things, food food crops and medicines. And you know the possibilities are, are endless. Maybe we'll be seeing uh, animal tusks produced using cellular agriculture in the future. Very cool. Okay. So I know your research is in early stages, which makes it all the more exciting to discuss, but are you thinking about commercializing this technology down the road? Well, um, that's a great question. <laughs> I don't at this, at this exact moment in time, I don't, I'm, I'm thinking about it. Yes. We're thinking about it but I don't have an exact answer for you unless you are a plant biologist looking for really creative opportunities. You can reach out to me. Maybe we'll, (laughs) maybe we'll have something for you. So it's an awesome thought to think about like where this could go. If it was in the industrial space, Uh, we could get a team of scientists together and like really move this research forward so that we can practically apply it. This and other research related to it. So, you know, 
it's it's something I'd really like to see happen. Uh, and maybe I'll be the one that makes it happen, or maybe someone else will be the one that makes it happen. So stay tuned, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, I just had to ask. And uh, kind of a follow-up question, uh, and as we start to wrap up here, I wanted to ask, I, I also get asked this question a lot because I am also a later stage graduate student like yourself. <laughs> so I have to ask, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up, Ashley? um yeah well for the first time in my life I feel like you know I I know the answer to that I want to be exactly what I am I want to be this kind of new age botanist (laughs) engineer so I think when I was a kid I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up because the role that I wanted didn't exist yet and so here we are making a new role (laughs) Uh, and yeah I'm just excited to see what it turns into and I'm not trying to overly define it or limit myself right but just continuing to to navigate this next gen plant material space if I can borrow your adjective yeah (laughs) maybe I'll be a a next gen engineer (laughs) next gen engineer (laughs) that was terrible (laughs) no it's great I like that it's so it sounds like you could go either next gen engineer in the commercialization or academia space you're not really sure right now yeah still tbd this was a moment of uh, a lot of opportunities and decisions for me um so as i wrap up my degree hopefully this this year um we'll see what we'll see what happens awesome And can people get in contact with you about your research if they wanted to collaborate or just ask some more questions? Yeah, of course. Feel free to reach out, especially if you're a plant biologist and choose like (laughs) some some cool opportunities in the plant space. I can see what what I can make happen. No, but serious in in general. Yeah, feel free to reach out. Uh, Happy to answer any additional questions. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ashley, for sharing your wonderful research and thoughts on the Next Gen Materials podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. This is your host, Lauren Blake, and I'm looking forward to seeing you on the next episode.